0: and accelerate your success. Hi, I'm Nikki Barua,
1: your host for today's episode. Company culture isn't about what you say, it's about what you do, the standards you uphold, the values you live by, and how you treat each other even when no one is watching. In this episode, you'll meet award-winning entrepreneur, Sherry Deutschman, who built a multi-million dollar business by putting employees first even ahead of customers and shareholders. Sherry reveals her recipe for building a people-first culture and how a leaders' choices directly impact employee morale, engagement and commitment. Sherry Deutschman is a serial entrepreneur and author of the best-selling book Lunch with Lucy, an inspiring and instructive guide to transformational leadership through empathy. Sherry is the founder of Brain Trust, a company dedicated to helping women entrepreneurs grow their businesses to a million dollars and beyond. Prior to Brain Trust, Sherry was the founder and CEO of Letter Logic, a company she grew to $40 million and sold in 2016. Letter Logic was named an Inc. 5000 company for 10 consecutive years. Letter Logic was also featured in the New York Times, Forbes, Business Leaders, Inc., and Fast Company. Sherry was recognized by EY as one of their 2009 Entrepreneurial Winning Women. Sherry was also honored by President Barack Obama as a White House Champion of Change in 2016. Visit imbeyondbarriers.com. You'll find show notes and links to all the resources in this episode, including the best way to get in touch with Sherry. Hi, Sherry. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you and uh, learn your story and leadership lessons and share it with our audience. Welcome aboard. Thank you, Nikki. It's just wonderful to be with you. Well, let's uh, dive right in because you have such an incredibly inspiring life story. Um, but for the sake of our audience, tell us sort of the most pivotal pieces of your journey that I think uh, would really bring to light what you are all about.
2: Wow. Um, I guess that would be with telling you what I'm not. Um <laughs> I'm not a college graduate. In fact, I never went to school. Um, I was a single mom, uh, a poor single mom, when I started a business competing with my former boss with my belief that I had what it took because I didn't have that degree. I didn't have the education. I had no leadership training, but I had a heart and I had Mm. empathy. And so I built a business uh, based on empathy and putting the employees first and um, I grew that company to $40 million without a penny in debt. Um, Just by taking that strategy, I'm going to take really good care of the employees, and they're going to be happy and well-fed and well-taken care of, and they're going to take great care of the customer. And um, it worked, and it got us uh, national and even international press um, right behind me, You'll see that fl- uh, framed a letter. That is uh, a letter from President Barack Obama, uh, naming oh, wow. me White House champion of change for my stance about putting employees first and, and really paying a fair living wage. So that, that is that,
1: that's that is you know a phenomenal way to you know for everyone to get to know you and your successes. Um, don't really. Um, give anyone a sense of where you even began and the struggles you went through because you know now you uh, are a serial entrepreneur that has built multiple successful businesses you're an investor you're uh, a best-selling author uh, congratulations <laughs> on that and you're continuing to do amazing things and sometimes when people hear all about the successes right? Uh, Our focus tends to go on all the things someone has, and we don't often fully comprehend where they came from and what they overcame. Um, Tell us a bit about your formation story, what the early days, um, even before you started the company, some of the struggles you went through.
2: Yeah, I I think uh, really key to um, knowing me is knowing that I grew up in a household where my family are all Jehovah's Witnesses. And so Jehovah's Witnesses, in in general, uh, don't uh, promote uh, college education. Um, And because there's no uh, education beyond high school, a lot of Witnesses get married very early, start families because there's really nothing else to do. Uh, They definitely don't believe in premarital sex. And so um, a lot of Witnesses get married early. And I did that, got married at 18, um, had no skills. Um, The only work I had done prior to um, my move to Nashville, Tennessee was in uh, toilet scrubbing. So I cleaned homes for wealthy people. And I had a route where I cleaned service station bathrooms, I mean, gas station bathrooms, uh, like icky. But I did that to make a living and uh, m- moved to Nashville as a single parent. I went through a divorce and got uh, disfellowshipped. It was no longer a witness. So I no longer had the support of my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, Or my friends, I was starting fresh in a new city. Um, Ironically, I moved to Nashville to be a star. Um, You know, Nashville, Tennessee is the home of country music. And I thought I was a singer, and I'm not. Um, And I learned that pretty quickly once I moved here. But um, the first couple of years in this town without any, uh, you know, backup system or resources were very difficult, Um, as a lot of single moms um, can tell you. Uh, sometimes I had to choose between paying the light bill or the daycare bill, mm. and um, and so we went without electricity. Um, my mom and dad came over to visit me once, and, and they couldn't call to tell me they were coming. It's a, like a six-hour drive because I didn't have a telephone. I couldn't afford a phone, uh, and they just showed up at my door and were just so upset that I didn't have electricity. And you know, I had to point to the the cooler over in the corner to say, you know, gosh, look in there. We have milk. We have cheese. You can look at our bodies and tell we're not starving. We're okay. We are managing. Um, and then going from that to, you know, I get, got a job where I was beginning to make ends meet, but I didn't have health insurance and going through a phase where um, not a phase, but where my daughter cut her foot on a playground. And uh, I didn't have a credit card. I didn't have insurance. I had no safe money. Um, and so I didn't take her to the doctor when I should have. And finally, the wound looked so bad that I just had to take her to the emergency room and be at their mercy for getting the bill paid. And um, the doctor told me that if I would waited another day, she could have lost her leg or even her life because she had a serious staph infection. Mm-hmm. So um, those early days uh, really... I think I have innate empathy, but those early days really kind of informed the kind of leader that I would become later mm-hmm. because I was better able to put myself in the shoes of the people that worked for me.
1: Mm.
2: Really to to see the world through their eyes, through their lens, in their shoes, because I'd been there. Mm. I mean, there were times when I had to count pennies to get enough pennies to roll 50 cents into a roll to stop and buy 50 cents worth of gas to get home to a hot apartment that did not have air conditioning. Um, and I know a lot of people have it even worse. But those early days, I think, were really good. I'm really grateful for them because they helped me hone my innate empathy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, I mean, that level of adversity most people actually have an experience, right? I mean, there's a lot of, there are a lot of people struggling right now because of COVID whose uh, lives and careers have been impacted potentially to businesses or finances. But um, some of the things you have overcome and um, faced in your life are of far greater magnitude. What would you say to someone who's struggling right now, but still has the means, still has the health and their family, and a roof over the head that will help them get perspective on those struggles and find um, the ability to um, focus on the positive.
2: I think um, to look at the people around you and see people who, um, who need help more than you do and to, um, to think more about others. Um, you know, I remember telling um, when I had new employees when I was onboarding them. I had what I called um, my company was called Letter Logic, and I had something that I called Letter Logic One Hundred One, where I brought in new employees and told them about us and about our our history and what we cared about. And, um, and I talked to them about our community service work. And I pointed to the street behind us a few blocks. And I said, there, right there is a safe haven, which is a, a homeless uh, shelter for families where entire families can live there up to um, 60 days. And, and uh, this young man, and it was like three people that I was onboarding that day. And this young man said, that's where I live. Mm. And I, I live there now with my wife and two children. I was like, oh my gosh! And um, you know, I never experienced that, that homelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, just just to think more about, it, concentrate on what you do have, mm-hmm. because I believe we we have enough. No matter what our life circumstances are, we have enough in 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 here. Mm-hmm. We are enough. And so to focus on what we do have and on our strengths and on our gifts and less on what we don't have. It
1: mm-hmm. really does put suffering and struggles into perspective because um, gratitude can really be that game changer when you focus on what you have versus focusing on the things that you're struggling with. But oftentimes those struggles are the very things that make us who we become. Yeah. And so much of your leadership beliefs and values stem from all the struggles you experienced personally. So back in those days, you know, did you have a vision for, you know, what was your vision back then of what you thought your life would become or was it just one step after the next? And where I'm going with this is, you know, for those that are feeling stuck and perhaps, in a state of inertia, if you will, where, you know, they're not living the life of their dreams and they're going through stuff. What, how, what guidance would you give to someone to say, here's how to go from where you are to finding your North star and taking steps in that direction?
2: Um, You know, I I think that I was at a place where I, um, there were no, uh, I didn't have a choice. Mm. I had this burning desire to take control of my life myself. Um, I'd had a series of jobs and I went from making so little I couldn't keep the lights on to making um, a lot of money. And I owned a couple of houses and all this happened very quickly. And yet I was working for a a man who did not appreciate me. Um, I was what I consider um, an ideal employee. I was a straight commission sales rep, but I dedicated my life to his company Um, and yet when I approached him to share some ideas with him about how our company could get better and I shouldn't say that it wasn't our company it was his company and I approached him with ways to make his company more successful and he patronizingly patted my hand and said Sherry you don't know anything about business Mm. why don't you just go sell another account and um, that was a pivotal moment for me, an epiphany, um, because I knew I didn't have that master's in business degree that he had from Vanderbilt, but I had common sense,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and, um, and I no longer wanted to work for, uh, be in a place where somebody didn't appreciate me. And didn't appreciate the gifts that I had. And so um, I just took the leap. And I I think a lot of people would have at the time thought I was crazy because I'd gone to making, you know, so little I couldn't keep the lights on to making about 16 grand a month. This was 20 years ago, so it was a lot. And at that time, not you know, I'd gone from being a single mom to being uh, still a single mom with a teenage uh, daughter who had just had a baby. So you know, there's three generations living in my household that I was responsible for, and to give up that steady income to start a business was crazy. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I didn't want to be beholden to anybody again, um, and I I thought that um, you know, although I didn't have the degree. I had something that he didn't have that I thought would serve me well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for people who have the entrepreneurial bone, it just can't be denied. You just yeah. have to do it. And then once you have that where you you are your own boss and nobody else is telling you what to do, it's really hard to go back.
1: Uh, there is no going back. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it it really isn't, no matter what the struggles are. And a lot of people – think entrepreneurship is uh, you know just all glamour and glitz, and it's all about the fame and the fortune, but the reality is it's uh, so much a journey of self-discovery and growth, um, constant growth and overcoming hardships, um, that that becomes the addiction, because you learn so much and grow so much it's hard to settle for anything less.
2: You know, uh, one of the practices that we had in this crazy company that I built was something we called a mistake quota. Um, And so we had um, each of the senior leaders met with me once a month, and they had to present the biggest personal or professional mistake they had made in the previous month and what we learned from it. And so uh, we learned to celebrate those failures. Um, and to celebrate the hardships because there were important lessons to be learned. Mm-hmm. And we shared them, you know, one to make everybody comfortable being vulnerable and really honest. Yeah. Uh, but so that the rest of us can learn from their mistakes and not have that mistake, um, or not make that same mistake ourselves. So uh, there's there something to be said for celebrating the tough times mm-hmm. yeah.
1: and not forgetting them. And and that's just one of the many incredible um, leadership lessons um, and practices that you put in place at Letter Logic, and and so many of them are uh, encapsulated even in your book, Lunch with Lucy. Um, walk us through some of the biggest sort of leadership beliefs and values that you build the company around, um, and how you know um, whether those were established right from the start. Or, you know, how did they come about? Because a lot of times people talk about, yeah, I'm building a business. Once it's successful, I'll think about culture. I'll think about values, right? Um, your approach was very different. Walk us through what it was like.
2: Um, I mean, from day one, uh, I established the company in a way that would put the employees first. And that meant I went to uh, potential customers to say, I want your business. I really do. But you have to understand that this company doesn't believe that the customer comes first. Um, My employees come first. And then I explained to them what that meant in our company. So it was um, making sure the employees had a voice. And in doing that, I created formal and informal ways to listen to the employees uh, on a regular basis. Um, It meant really paying them a fair living wage. And, um, Nikki, I could talk a whole hour about what that means. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
2: It meant um, helping, letting them bring their kids to work mm-hmm. and their pets to work whenever they wanted or whenever they needed. Um, and so sometimes our, our company felt more like a zoo, <laughs> uh, but it was very family-like in that way. You had kids yeah. here, and most of the time they hung out in my office. Um, we helped employees buy their first homes. Because that is such Mm -hmm. a part of the, at least the American dream of Mm -hmm. home ownership. And so helping them buy their first homes. And then importantly, uh, and right at the core, was sharing the profits. Mm -hmm. I think there were, you know, three basic practices that we had that were um, crucial to our success. One was listening. Mm -hmm. Two was in being uh, totally uh, transparent sharing the books with the employees so they knew how much money we made and then um, The third which is really the most important which was sharing the profits with them And Mm -hmm. so we had a a very unique profit-sharing plan uh, unlike anything I'd ever heard about before and um, uh, If you've got time, I'd love to share that but yes, please.
1: Yeah walk us through that.
2: So most corporations have uh, profit-sharing plans that are based on a percentage of your salary. So first, the uh, profits are usually distributed annually.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, after the first of the year, or after the end of their fiscal year, they've closed the books and then they do profit distribution. It's p- based on a percentage of your salary. So you know, the higher you are up on the food chain in that company, the, the, yeah. you know, the greater uh, dollar amount you're going to get. Um, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted every employee to know that they were equally valuable. And so we had our profit share monthly, and we did it monthly um, so that we could remember so what we did was gather all the employees together in one room and we went over the financials and I gave them the financials, and they could see them on a big screen, and we looked at top line this is exactly how much money we brought in here's the bottom line this is the, the amount of profit we made, but then we talked about all the factors in between so that the employees could draw um a direct correlation between their actions and their mm-hmm. contribution and that bottom line. And so they could uh, begin to see where they fit in mm. and how they were part of the big picture. And then we handed out checks and this is the, this is the kicker. It was equal. Wow. So our custodian got exactly the same thing our CFO got and the head of IT got exactly the same thing that our receptionist got. And that taught everybody, you matter.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You matter as much as anybody. And, um, and it taught us, you know, um, the, the C-level people that we, we, didn't ma- we were no more important than anyone else. And it made, made the employees have more empathy and respect for each other. And it made them work together more closely. Mm-hmm. So that we were uh, more unified in building that bottom line, so that the next month the profit share would be even greater. Uh, and then we handed out there were paper checks; they weren't an you know, automatic um, deposit to your account because I wanted the tangible reward and to be able to hand um, a check to the employee and say, "Look, look at what we did together."
1: Mm -hmm.
2: and you know we were a startup so at first the checks were like the first one was seven dollars but then they grew to be four hundred dollars five hundred dollars and the last one that i assigned was over a thousand dollars this is monthly so if you are somebody that's making twenty twenty five dollars an hour and every month somebody's handing you a check that says look what we did together and here's my five hundred dollars that can really change lives, and, and I think
1: it did. Absolutely. I mean, the level of empowerment, I can visualize what those team meetings would have felt like walking through the financials, feeling a true sense of ownership, because there's nothing that makes you feel like an owner than being responsible for the fate and the outcome of the company, but also sharing the rewards. Um yeah and yes a lot of companies hand out equity and you know you get uh, shares in the company but a lot of times it doesn't really mean anything right, right. because um, so many companies especially in the tech startup world you can get you know a certain percentage of shares with a four year vesting period and and all of that but it doesn't mean anything day to day. You don't even know what it's worth unless there's a tangible event. But what you did was create something very practical, very tangible, and very immediate. So the mentality and the mindset of saying, everything I do today matters in the results tomorrow. And with a 30-day chunking, it also creates a level of agility and focus. Yeah. So it's absolutely brilliant. Um, you know, help our uh, listeners and especially for leaders and entrepreneurs that are listening into this, help them understand, you know, the profit pool itself. Granted, it was equal, but what portion of the total profits? Like, how did you think about reinvestment in the business or owners and things like that? How did that work?
2: Um, I, t- I distributed 10% every month. Okay. Um, and so, um, and I love the fact that you said the investment, cause that's how I looked at it. It was an investment. So I had a pie this big and I took a wedge this big, 10% to give it to them, investing in them. And mm-hmm. what it was make my pie this big and then this big. Right. Um, and, and you hit on something else important the, 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 the greater access to knowledge they had. Mm-hmm how our profitability occurred and what our expenses were, the more it shaped their behavior and their decisions. Uh, It empowered them to make changes that would drive that bottom line. And they wanted to then because they had skin in the game. They had a vested interest.
1: Absolutely. I think um, innovation really comes from that. When you know you matter and when you know that your actions and your ideas can actually impact results. You're mo- motivated because innovation, you know, truly comes from diversity of thought in different jobs. There is no such thing as diversity coming only from the C-suite. Um, but to truly engage your team in that way, nothing unlocks innovation better than that kind of practical guidance. So kudos to you. It's I can see where President Obama recognized you for exactly that kind of mindset and philosophy. Um, and um, so... From there, you know, you also mentioned helping people buy houses. Share a little bit about that. In practical terms, how did that work?
2: Um, In the early days, it was, um, you know, anybody would just come to me and they say, I need. I need $50,000. I need to borrow a house. And we would help them get into the house. Um, As we became a bigger company, we had each person meet with our CFO, who was a young woman who was really keen on us not letting people get in over their heads. And so she would counsel with them to ensure that they could actually afford a house, because it was more than just a mortgage payment. And then from there, we would... um, uh, gift them the money, either for the down payment or the closing costs in their homes. <coughs> Excuse me. I think one of the best stories I have about that is a, a young uh, woman whose family, um, she actually actually worked for my dry cleaner. And I noticed that when I would go in on um, you know Saturday mornings, she was there. And Tuesday nights, she was there. And so I, I inquired about their hours and found out that they were paid on salary and they were working 10, 12-hour days. Mm-hmm. And so I went back to my husband and said, "That's not legal," and I'm going to have them shut down. And he was like, "No." Then where's she going to work? And I was like, "She's going to work at Letter Logic." <laughs> so I hired her, and immediately started paying her a fair living wage. And she um, is, uh, had immigrated from Mexico, was here legally, and trying to uh, become a citizen. And she um, approached me about uh, 18 months into her employment and said, "We want to buy a house." And so I had a meet with Jennifer, our CFO, and then Jennifer said, oh, my gosh, I'm sending her back. You have to talk to Maria. So Maria came back to tell me, um, to answer my questions, which was, do you have any savings? Yes. How much? $50,000. Like, oh, my gosh. Well, do you have any debt? No. We just paid off the truck, and they had a big, fancy, dually pickup truck. I'm like, how did you do that, Maria? And she said, well, every month I took our profit share check, and I just saved it. And because I was being paid a fair wage here than my husband, and I had regular hours, my husband was able to, to work overtime at his job, and we have saved my entire paycheck and lived off his his uh, construction job.
1: Wow.
2: How, ma- how many Americans do you know that have $50,000 saved up? Wow. She was uh, an a- amazing um, role model for everyone else. And then I had to tell her, man, Maria, this program wasn't meant for people like you that have their act together. This is meant for people who don't. So we we furnished her new nursery uh, instead as a gift. But um, uh, that was my, my greatest home buying story ever uh, through the growth of the company.
1: Wow, that's incredible because that is truly changing lives. That's not yeah. just... Creating employment. I mean, one of the things that every entrepreneur takes pride in is being able to create jobs. It is a privilege, and um, it is such an honor to be able to create jobs and um, pay—you know—be able to provide uh, livelihood to people. But you took it to the next level of even um, helping them realize their biggest dreams. Yes, for the homes and families, and uh, um, and then from there, you also. Put another leadership principle into uh, practice, which is lunch with Lucy. Um, So let's dive into that because uh, not only is it the title of your book, but it comes from something that you um, practice in your company that was pivotal to your culture. So, who is Lucy? Well, Lucy
2: is my alter ego. So um, I I wanted to set up a regular time to have lunch with employees um, where they would invite me to lunch. I picked up the tab, but they would choose the restaurant, and um, and it seemed it's not very sexy to have lunch with the CEO. Not very. That doesn't sound like fun, doesn't lunch with the CEO. Um, so I just made it lunch with Lucy, so that I was just a coworker, um, very accessible, non-threatening, and um, I carved out that you know hour and a half every Wednesday for them. So they chose the restaurant and they also chose who else would go with us to lunch. Mm So most of the time it was just the two of us, but, um, sometimes it was, you know, a family member, they wanted me to meet. Sometimes it was their entire department. Um, but importantly it was about them. Um, lunch with Lucy was about Lucy listening. And so, um, you know, I got to hear about, uh, the challenges that they faced every morning before they came into work
1: mm-hmm.
2: and you know, what unique challenges they faced when they went home. And, um, I got to hear about, you know, what they wanted out of life and what their goals were. Um, often goals that they had to put aside, um, to make a living and work in my factory. Uh, and then, crucial learning during that time was they told me firsthand what they thought of my leadership and what they thought I was doing wrong, and um, what they needed from me to make them more effective in their jobs. Um, you know, one of the most memorable lunches with Lucy was actually um, one of my favorite employees, Rob. Everybody knows he was one of my favorites, so it's all right for me to put it out there in the whole world. Um, invited me to lunch and. Um, I loved Rob because he, he saved up his money every year to go to the Ukraine to work with orphans. And that got my heart immediately. Um, and he invited me to lunch and he kind of tricked me because when I went to the lobby um, to meet him, the lobby was full. His entire department <laughs> came with us to like, um, to kind of attack me about a policy change that I'd made. And they wanted me to know firsthand how it affected them and their lives. Um, and so that was a two-hour lunch and I just listened and I came back and changed the policy immediately because I had not anticipated how that little change would affect them.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, so it gave me incredible insight into what was going on in the company that I would not have been aware of otherwise.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and it, it's not like I was in an ivory tower and my office was out in the factory. Right. So I was clo- much closer to the factory people in the factory than I was to the people in the office or the people in the IT department. Um, I mean, closer to them heart wise and, you know, physical wise. Uh, but, uh, it's still, there was still a, you know, a barrier between me and them. It's, mm-hmm. it's and that lunch with Lucy took that barrier away. Um, so even now it's been, I sold the company four years ago and still I get, uh, employees calling me, uh, calling Lucy to ask Lucy to go to lunch. And they started calling me Lucy and, um, And it just made me a lot more accessible to them. And um, it became the most important time I spent in growing my business every week. Mm. Um, I got, for the price of lunch, I got something that I would have had to pay consultants tens of thousands of dollars for.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, And got something that no amount of money could get. Um, That closeness, um, the glue that kept me and um, my employees... um, working together so closely.
1: That is just beautiful. And it's uh, like so much about you. It's very unconventional. You know, you've taken an unconventional path. You have unconventional um, policies that you've put in place and frankly is the reason you've um, been so successful. What were some of the hardest times for you as an entrepreneur that you overcame during that time?
2: I think... uh, that what's common to you know women is lack of confidence. Mm -hmm. And that struck me at several times in our company growth. And so because I didn't have a college education uh, and I felt like there were so many things I didn't know. There were a couple of times in our history where I hired in other people to I was still CEO in name, but I pushed a lot of the responsibility onto other people Mm. to lead. And, um, and they quickly got us on a bad track um, away from our empathic business model and more into um, regular corporate structures. And uh, in one time in particular, um, you know, a man who had all the right credentials, but he was derailing us. And it was my lack of confidence that caused mm. that. And so I uh, jumped back in the fray, got rid of him, and uh, realized that nobody was more qualified to lead my company than me, Mm. Uh, especially because I had this unorthodox uh, business model and structure and um, that I I wasn't going to let go of that, and I couldn't entrust it to anyone else at that moment. So I, I think most of the hardships came um, you know, I brought on myself
1: mm-hmm.
2: because of um, not, not having more faith in my own ability.
1: And that's, um, it's a common struggle that so many women go through, whether it's a position that they really want in the workplace, that they're second guessing and feeling like they're not ready for it yet. Um, or even as entrepreneurs, not believing they can truly build a big business, you know, settling for a lifestyle business, not because of lifestyle, but because of fear. Right. Um, what techniques, you know, have you employed that have helped you sort of in that moment, not the ultimate decision, but actually overcome that sort of imposter syndrome or the lack of confidence? Is there something that... Um, a woman who is in this situation right now might listen in and say, okay, I can use, you know, this is a framework that I can use.
2: Uh, I'd say two things. One, knowledge and depth of knowledge and breadth of knowledge uh, takes away that lack of confidence.
0: Mm.
2: For me, that meant me learning the financials of the company so that I didn't have to entrust anyone else to it. I knew it instinctively. But I think uh, more importantly is uh, having peers who can um, tell you where your blind spots are. I mean, that's where, why they're called blind spots, because you're not even aware of them. Yeah. And so um, I got that through my association with EO, uh, that's the Entrepreneurs' Organization, and through WPA, the Women's Presidents' Organization, mm-hmm. where I had peers um, who could um, point out to me where my weaknesses were and
0: mm-hmm. then
2: me accountable to change and I remember um one of our exercises maybe seven or eight years ago which I still think about often was where uh we had uh we wrote each of us wrote about the other members what we thought were their strengths um what we thought their brand was and where we saw warning signs so not a weakness but a warning sign Mm. and uh that was so empowering. And I encourage women to do that with a group of friends and peers. You have strengths that you don't even know you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have this a lack of sophistication because of the way I was raised. And I um, was shy about sharing it openly because of that. It turns out that that's actually a strength. It makes me approachable to just about everybody. And so uh, instead of me, not speaking up and not showing how unsophisticated I am. It became something that I embraced. Yeah. And said, hey, this here I am in all my glory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so having a group of peers that can tell you wh- wh- what you're good at, that you don't know what you're good at, mm-hmm. and where they can tell you the value that you bring to them is really empowering. And then for them to say, and this is something that we think you should work on. And we did it in a, in a group with eight people and they did it independently. And then they all handed me their sheet and, ooh, uh, like four of them said that one of my weaknesses was self-denigration. Mm. So it wasn't about humility. It was, um, you know. Putting yourself down. Yeah. And they cited that as, um, as a weakness that I needed to work on, and, um, and I do. But um, having peers, peer-to-peer learning is the best tool for, that I can think of for entrepreneurs, but for professional development, or even um, for any group,
1: mm-hmm.
2: any woman that you need that group. And mm-hmm. you know, because of that, um, I started a company a year ago called Brain Trust, which is... Uh, for women to help more women get um, their startups, you know, to a, to a million dollars in revenue. Mm-hmm. And, um, that peer to peer component is at the heart. And, uh, mm-hmm. so if you don't have friends uh, uh, who can hold you accountable and be honest with you, find them.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I love the idea of brain trust. So I want to dig into that uh, a little bit more. Um, First, in terms of your specific focus for brain trust, because there's lots of entrepreneurial peer organizations out there. um, But you took a very, again, a very unconventional approach. Uh, A lot of entrepreneurial mentoring organizations focus on businesses that are over $5 million, um, sometimes even higher than that. And as uh, you and I both know, um, barely two percent, one percent of companies make it that far. So there's ninety nine percent that are left without any sort of support. And um, part of the reason why mentoring organizations don't focus on that is because there, you know, there's a question about whether that's a profitable customer segment to focus on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can make more money if you focus on bigger businesses, and you again. a completely unconventional route Um, walk us through your thinking
2: well um, there are so many organizations you're right that cater to those companies who are at a million or two million or five million Mm -hmm. But the truth is that they're rarefied air like you said like less than 2% of women ever get to a million less than 5% of men ever get to a million and that leaves the rest of us out there struggling to like to t- to know what because we don't know what we don't know, and we're left without the resources to help us get to that point. Um, and so, um, Brain Trust was created to help you get to a million. If you've got a dollar in revenue and you're a, a legal entity. Um, so you've already got your business license and all that. Mm. And then you can join and then us help you get to a million, mostly through the, the peer-to-peer learning. A million is um, it's not scientific, but there's a lot of thought around the fact that once you get to a million in revenue, you um, are probably paying yourself a decent salary. Mm-hmm.
1: For
2: the- and once you get there, you're no longer working um, in the business you're working on the business mm-hmm. at a higher level. And so that's where you get the chance to really start scaling.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Um, if you're a an- million is always the hardest. You know, once you get past that, you're attracting talent. You're able to get um, bank loans easier, credit oh. lines easier. There's just so many other things. And people are just more likely to help you because you sort of have gained a level of legitimacy as an entrepreneur where it's not just a job where you're self-employed.
2: Exactly, you, you, you nailed it. And like there are 13 million women owned businesses in the US, and less than 2% of them qualify for the, the two best peer to peer organizations that I know of EO and WPO. They don't qualify, and many, most of them never will. And so, um, through Brain Trust, we're going to help more women break through that barrier. And uh, this is um, one of my friend Pat. I don't know who she stole this from, but I've quoted her saying it is that you teach uh, teach a man to to fish and he'll eat for a day. You teach a woman to fish and she feeds the village for a lifetime. So these small women-owned businesses, we're not just making enough money for our household. We're employing people. We're changing the world.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So uh, Brain Trust is to help women grow their businesses, grow their um, grow their personal wealth mm-hmm. and there's nothing wrong with that yeah and once you do that then to to, to um expand your influence in the world
0: mm-hmm.
2: um and so that's really what i'm all about uh, us um expanding our
1: influence so we can make change uh in, in our communities and in the world and, and like you said, they're really not mutually exclusive. In fact, it's important to have that where we need to stop shunning the idea that we're only doing things because we want to make a difference, that it's all about impact. Because you can't make impact without power, influence, and capital. Um, you know, that is what you need to ultimately make change. So if you are someone who has a bigger sense of purpose, you um, you need the money and the commercial success and the influence and access in order to be able to drive change and building an entrepreneurial venture that scales is a terrific way to do it.
2: Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, that's why, you know, how likely is it that uh, I, as an entrepreneur of a small business in Nashville, Tennessee would get, um, you know, have the New York, no, the, the uh, New York times, write about me or Forbes magazine or mm-hmm. have Obama know about me. It's only through business. Business really can give us tremendous influence and a, a megaphone.
1: Um, and we something. also become the visible role models that then inspire some little girl somewhere to believe that she can too. And I think that is that visibility creates even more change than the work we actually do. Yes.
2: And what you said a minute ago I, 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 um, about. You know, making sure that you know having a business now that gives you the power. Um, I've told women a a million times uh, when they come to me with their ideas that are all about good, and I can have, I can cure this little thing. I can help this thing. You can't do good, or you can't do as much good until you're doing well. Mm. And when your business is doing well, then you have the resources, the power, the influence to uh, make your reach far wider and and deeper.
1: I think that's a really powerful statement because um, if you want to do good, then learn to do really well. (laughs) Because once you do really well, you can impact more lives, you can take care of more people um, and give them the tools and resources and access to dream their own dreams. Mm -hmm. Um, So... um, in, tell us how brain trust is structured in terms of, let's say, you know, someone's interested, they have, you said it takes just as long as you're a legal entity, you make a dollar in revenue, you qualify, which is phenomenal because nobody gets this kind of access uh, that you're offering. So if there's someone listening in that says, okay, Sherry, I check those boxes, what do I do next?
2: Well, they go to ourbraintrust.org, and they fill out an application. So you go through um, a training process and, and the, an acceptance process. We want to know that you're intent on growing your business because you can't remain a member um, after your first year if your business hasn't grown by at least 10%. Mm.
0: So
2: we want to see you growing, and we're going to push you in that direction. Um, and, um, and then we want to know that you're a, a learn-it-all instead of a know-it-all we've had some women approach us and say, yes, I want to be part. I love coaching women. I nah, can't be a member. You're not, we are not coaches. We are not there to coach each other. We are not to mentor each other or support each other. We're there to hold each other accountable. Mm-hmm. And so the way it works is after you become a member, you are placed in what we call a vault. a place that's safe. Um, and that holds a great value. And that vault has no more than six other women. So, a total of seven women, and you meet once a month for three hours. Um, Some of our groups are loving it so much they've stretched that to four hours now. Um, a A once a month meeting where you come to the table with the challenges that you're experiencing in your business now. And you lay out the problem in detail, and we teach you how to do that. And then we go around the table, and the other women ask you clarifying questions to make sure they understand the big picture of your problem. And then we go back around and then the women share their experiences that are relevant
0: mm.
2: to that problem. They don't share advice, um, even thinly veiled advice. They can't say, um, have you thought about or would you consider? Um, instead, it is, well, about four years ago, I encountered a similar problem and this is what happened. And mm-hmm. so they share their failures and their triumphs in, re, in, uh, in similar issues and then leave it for the woman to draw her own conclusions and, and her own next steps.
0: Mm
2: hmm. Uh, involved in all that is, um, accountability. So you bring to the table, your goals, um, for your business or your personal life. And then every month you report on your progress toward those goals. And, um, One of our members in her first month, uh, she joined in February, and she said, well, for two years, I've been saying I'm going to get a line of credit for my business, and I haven't, so I'm going to do that. She did it because she said that she did not want to walk into that group the next month and tell them I didn't do it. So the accountability measure was great. So she got her line of credit that she wanted right before the shutdown.
1: Wow.
2: he had the money then power through this COVID change and her business is doing, in fact, most of our members of businesses have grown during this phase. Um, So there's the accountability, but the experience sharing and everything that is said in that vault is confidential. Uh, Nobody can speak to it, uh, speak about it to a spouse. If they run into another member on the street, they can't, but it stays right there.
1: Um, and That's it, phenomenal. I, you know, it really is the next level peer group that will lift you up, that will provide you with the perspective that you need to hear, um, and also help you discover the solutions for yourself. And ultimately, the accountability part is really what gets us to achieve things because everyone has a dream, but. Very few actually accomplish their dreams because nobody's holding them accountable and we're not very good at holding ourselves accountable often.
2: (laughs) In in my EO group, I told them I weighed 142 and I want to weigh 130. And so I brought scales to the meeting. My group is six men and two women. And they were like, oh, no, we we don't want to see that. But the accountability uh, part of it got me to, I've been at 130 now for a year. Um, And it's just that a little accountability,
1: which we all need. Excellent. That's amazing. Um, So all of these accomplishments from where you started your journey, you know, from your original, you know, sort of, uh, you know, being a single mom who had been through a divorce to, you know, cleaning toilets to uh, moving to Nashville to be a star and then, um, you know, finding a job that paid well, but didn't treat you well to Building your own business and scaling it to one of the top women owned businesses, winning awards and recognition for that, um, to now building brain trust, which is empowering so many women. On top of that, you write a book and it becomes a bestseller. So, obviously, you have many, many inspiring stories and a lot of lessons to share with people. But tell me a little bit about the behind the scenes for you as an author. What was that like? It was really hard. Um,
2: in fact, I, I, it took me a lot longer to write this book than I expected because I uh, let life get in the way and other people's desires get in the way. And I actually had to find a place uh, away from family and obligations. And um, I, I got a little, a condo downtown Nashville where I would go every day and write for just half a day so that I could finish it. And, and then the process of finding the right publisher, um, you know, I had, um, even Harper Collins, um, you know, offered me, um, publishing for my book with, um, with an advance, which was a dream for it to have a company like that, um, make me an offer. And, but finding somebody that I thought believed in me, um, uh, and choosing the right publisher, which for me was Greenleaf and, uh, Ink Originals, Ink Magazine. And, um and just dis- being disciplined enough. And so I have another book in me at least, and I, I think I'll approach it very differently next time. Um, mm-hmm. I'll probably go away for a month and write the book and come back and, um, you know, get, the, get that book out. It's, it's a lot of work. It's, it's, it's not just writing the book. I think that's the easy part. It's uh, editing the book and the publicity for the book and, um, I think everybody
1: should try it and uh, recognize how hard it is. It certainly is. It's, uh, you know, um, I I think for a lot of um, authors, um, especially the first-time authors, I think the biggest challenge uh, can often be battling with your own ideas and learning to hold back the judgment before the words hit the page. Um, You know, learning not to edit before you write. Uh, It it does, but there's a level of vulnerability and courage that it takes to put your story out there that um, really transforms your confidence and sense of self, which is why I think it becomes such a powerful, you know, sort of element of our uh, journeys as leaders. So congratulations on your success. How does it feel to have um, this um, such a personal part, you know, be recognized?
2: Um, is validating in a lot of ways. I I believe that my business approach, the employee first business model, I think that it is um, like a secret tool uh, to make companies more successful. And I I think that it doesn't matter what size company you have, but uh, this, and so that's why I wrote the book to make, to expose this line of thinking to other entrepreneurs but for me, as, uh, it's incredibly validating for me as, uh, as a person. Mm-hmm. You know. Yesterday I got my first um, royalty checks, and I, was, I couldn't believe it. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and I certainly didn't do it for the money, but the money is a way to measure the success. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I, I just hope that m- more entrepreneurs, if they don't um, – read by and read my book that they at least think about what they can do to make sure that their employees are heard and that they have a voice and that they know that they matter. Um, Forbes magazine had an article recently that said that t- uh, companies who have engaged employees do uh, 21% better profitability wise.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that to be true um, from having grown my own business. Yeah, I think, um, during this time, especially with the rapid transformation that's happened in business because of COVID, it's changed where people work, how they collaborate people are questioning whether this is the right place for me, whether this is what I really want to do. It's even more important for organizations to really lead with culture where it's Mm -hmm. not just a poster on the wall, but how you treat people and how they feel about themselves um, in that process. And I think your book isn't just for entrepreneurs. I love the book and I highly recommend it, but I don't think it's just for entrepreneurs. I think it's for leaders in any workplace but it's also for aspiring leaders to shape their own values and the belief system as they step into roles where they have greater responsibility because there's no better time to know you know how to be because so many people come out of a traditional way of thinking and a traditional schooling and business school system that teaches the protocols and the principles that you're supposed to follow to get to profit and leading with empathy leading with a different approach, um, can, is really what the world needs now. And that's exactly what you lay out so beautifully in your book. And, uh, I think it's a leadership must read. Thank, thank you.
2: Now I've had business leaders who've approached me to say, um, I only have so much power within my organization. I don't get to call the shots. I'm not the CEO. And, and yet I believe in this empathic leadership model and, um, Give me, you know, one thing that I can do that will make a difference in my organization. And, um, and I think about, you know, besides listening, praise, Mm. praising employees. And, And there are three ways to do that there is, um, directly to a person saying, I love your contribution to this project, it was really valuable. But that's not as as valuable as uh, if you do it in front of someone. And then you say, John, did you see what Nikki did mm-hmm. and how this contributed to our project? Look, she did this and this. Isn't that great? But the more, most powerful way is to talk good about somebody behind their backs in a way that you know will get back to them. And um, I accomplished that by writing to my um, employees' uh, spouses and their parents. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had a lot of young people who worked for me and I'd write to their parents and say, uh, Travis, you, you raised a man when you raised Travis and his contributions to our company are ridiculous. And then I would name the things that he had done for us and and having his parents see the impact of their 24-year-old son on our business. Mm-hmm. And then writing to um, the women whose husbands were on the road with me selling to say, Thank you so much for, um, you know, taking care of things at home so that um, your husband could do this and look at the lives that he's impacting.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
2: our profit share was through the roof this month and it was because of the contributions that you and your husband made. Um, and so your, your, your um, sacrifice meant that all these other families prospered during this month. Thank you for that. And. Um, and so just bragging about them in a way that you know is going to get back to them is a pretty darn powerful way, and it's free.
1: That's very practical advice that I think any leader anywhere can apply, and for our young listeners that are aspiring to be leaders, I think that is absolutely pivotal advice to adopt right from day one. So, thank you for sharing all your wisdom, your experiences, uh, life lessons. And um, I'm so inspired by what you're doing with Brain Trust now. And uh, excited for more people to read Lunch with Lucy and to join Brain Trust if it's the right thing for them. And uh, excited to share this with more people. So, thanks for being on the show, Sherry. It's been an absolute delight.
2: Thank you, Nikki. It was a pleasure to be with you.
0: Share your comments and topic suggestions on imbeyondbearers.com and we'll be sure to address them in future episodes. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and rate the podcast or just tell a friend about it. See you next episode.